You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's Bible examination, we're in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be starting in chapter 10. And as we like to do, we open with a word of prayer. Craig, would you please lead us? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you didn't leave us as orphans in this world, but you've given us the the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us, and you've given us your, your magnificent Holy Word. Uh, we thank you that we can gather together tonight to, to study your word together, and we really appreciated this chapter talking about Jesus' sacrifice for all, that apart from Jesus' sacrifice, we would not have access to you, the Father. So we're so grateful, we, we love you, and we just pray that you open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to receive study tonight in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And, and welcome back, Mark. Yes, it's good to be back with everyone after uh, missing a week or two here. We are looking at this letter written to the Hebrews. Uh, we know it's written by a Greek-speaking Judean to a synagogue community of Greek-speaking Judeans somewhere out of Palestine proper. We don't know much more than that. I don't think this is Paul, but I think this is someone who knew Paul very well. A slightly different writing style and even a slightly different twist on some passages that Paul also uses in his writings, but no contradictions. And the purpose of this letter is to convince the audience not to just slip back and do nothing and become good members of the synagogue community in good standing with the Judean leadership out of Jerusalem, but to continue to boldly proclaim Jesus of Nazareth as the long-promised Messiah, as the fulfillment of all of the promises in what we call the Old Testament. And he's been contrasting the old age, basically the age of Moses or the law, with the new age, which is dawning in the process of dawning as the letter is being written. And so let's uh, look here at the first four verses of uh, chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who are drawn near to worship. Otherwise, or would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those whose sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Great, thank you. So he's really succinctly summing up all of the various ceremonial offerings that we find in the Law of Moses here and referring to the sacrifices. He specifically has been talking about the Day of Atonement, the holiest day, uh, Yom Kippur in the Israelite calendar and has demonstrated how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that ceremony and how that ceremony 
looked forward to Christ's redemptive work in a very perfect way. If we have time, we'll look at the parable Christ gives in Luke 19, which has real similar parallels to the Day of Atonement ceremony and someone going away to receive a kingdom and then coming back and so on. But that Day of Atonement, in being observed once a year, brought an annual reminder of sins. And our author is making the strong point here that nothing in the law of Moses could cleanse the conscience of a guilty sinner. And this is a one of many superior things about the new age that is dawning compared to the old age, which is about to disappear. But it's a big one that you could never really have a clean conscience under the law of Moses, even though you would bring offerings year by year, month by month, as opportunity presented itself on the Israelite calendar. Well, do you think that the uh, author of Hebrews was trying to make the point that Jesus died for our sins and that that cleanses the conscience? Well, he yes, he's definitely making that point. But he's doing it in the... I mean, that's the basic fact of the gospel. But he's really grinding it in to these believers who are being presented with alternatives Apparently, persecution is about to really step up a notch or two in their location. And all they really would have to do to avoid that is to just slink back into the synagogue membership and uh, quit proclaiming Christ, maybe quit assembling with the other believers on the night before the Sabbath and so on. So when you say persecution in their location... I assume you mean persecution of the Jewish Christians by the Jewish leaders? Is that the persecution you're referring to? Yes, what a lot of people would call the Great Tribulation, where the high priesthood was able to get Nero, Caesar, to back them with the full power of Rome and this would be the first time to the typical Roman that any distinction was made between a Christian between Christians and Jews and and Jews or Judeans, yes. So, you know, it was a bad time, but it lasted roughly three and a half years. In chapter 12, he'll tell us that none of them had had to suffer bodily harm. They had had their goods taken or maybe they'd been resettled forcibly and lost their goods that way. So they had had periods of persecution, but not to the point of dying or shedding blood. So we can tell from little hints in the letter that this situation uh, exists. So, of course, in their mind they know this about Jesus, but will they continue to act upon that knowledge as we build towards chapter 11, which is the Hall of Fame of Faith, as many people would call it. He's going to be giving them a lot of examples of heroes from Israel's history who placed their confidence in things that they could not see or feel or touch or hear, and even to the point of resisting the civil government 
and or religious leaders who were opposed to them. So we're building up to that, but we're not there yet. At this point, he's reminding us again about these sacrifices and the inferior nature of these offerings under the law of Moses. They were not cleansed in their conscience. They were not cleansed once and for all. And in fact, he just says it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats would be able to take away sin. So that fact really covers all of those old ceremonial sacrifices and tells us that they weren't real. They were just kind of a temporary holding place until what was real could come. And what what's real is Jesus Christ, even though we cannot touch him or see him, he is absolutely and totally real. And the things that they could see in terms of the temple in Jerusalem and the priests and the altar and all that, those things were fading away. They appeared to be real, but they were temporary. Jesus doesn't appear physically, but he is very real. And again, this this is very problematic for our dispensational and Zionist friends who stress the physical over and over again to the exclusion of the spiritual in so many ways as they attempt to read the Bible by their very twisted and convoluted rules that demand a physical interpretation of the passage in most cases. Jesus pretty much said it himself uh, in Matthew. I forget which chapter and verse it is, but where he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifices. Right, and he's quoting from the Old Testament prophets as he even says that. So he's not telling them anything new, but he's really explaining where the emphasis should have been as they use the law to justify what they're doing and as they demand a place in God's presence because of their perfect obedience to the law, he's telling them that they're totally off base, that they've totally missed the important parts of the law in that passage there in Matthew. So, again, this is the great tragedy of our age. That's why we're all assembled here this evening. That's why we talk about because this interpretation of the Bible is not just bad, but it's killing people on a daily basis. And it's obviously not the way God intended for us to read his word. And this whole letter is stressing the superiority of the unseen spiritual things to the physical things. And really at the heart of it is the true Israel at this time is a spiritual people that God has raised up through the work of Jesus Christ. The children of Abraham are children by faith, not by blood lineage. And uh, this, of course, cuts to the core of some of the questions that were discussed earlier. You know, there's a strong movement in Israel now by uh, Israeli Jews, some uh, ultra-conservative Orthodox Jews in Israel, to 
of course, rebuild the temple and bring back the practice of animal sacrifice. And they've even had, you know, a few animal sacrifices. There are stories about that. And I, I can just imagine that Christian Zionists are rooting them on, saying yes. Oh, yes. They, oh, yeah. They're doing more than that. They're contributing vast sums for the building of this temple. And we have a cattle rancher in Nebraska who is devoting almost everything he has to rebreeding the red heifer, the red heifer that's yeah. necessary to yield the ashes of purification under the law of Moses. So, yeah, they're they're definitely rooting them on and contributing to this, apparently so that it can all be destroyed in a conflagration, but that's a whole other discussion. Mm. But this paragraph is telling us that the old order of things could never bring those who worshipped under it to a state of perfection. And we see... Uh, more incidental pointers in this paragraph that this letter is written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in the year A.D. 70. And the concept that God will not remember our sins in the New Covenant is also implied here in this passage, as it had been mentioned back in chapter 8. Paul writing in Romans 8 to uh, probably the uh, Gentile believers in Rome, said that the spirit you have received is not a spirit of slavery leading you back into a life of fear, but a spirit that makes us sons, enabling us to cry, Abba, Father. The law was a life of fear, and it had a spirit of slavery wrapped up with it. But the new covenant adopts us, into God's immediate household and makes us sons rather than servants, as physical Israel was really under the old covenant. There's a psalm, the 51st psalm, that has some of this sentiment in it, Create in me a clean heart, O God, put a new and right spirit within me. You have no delight in sacrifice. Were I to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. And this had been scripture for the Judean people for 900 years, roughly, at the time that this letter was written. So, not new concepts, but most of the scribes and the Pharisees had missed the point entirely. All right. Any other uh, comment here on this first paragraph? Let's read then verses 5 through 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All right, well, thank you. Well, this is not a very politically correct uh, paragraph at all. He's talking about doing away with the first order so as to establish the second. 
the scholarly term for this is uh, supersessionism, or popular term is replacement theology. There are some minor nuances or variations, but the dispensational paradigm says that the old order is reestablished to run in parallel <laughs> to this new order, which is just kind of temporary. So it doesn't jive, in my mind at all, with the dispensational paradigm here, uh, what, what our writer is saying here either. I'm sure they have a long, complicated explanation. So this ties into some of our earlier discussion. That This is from the 40th Psalm. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but you have fashioned a body for me. And this is probably referring to the physical body that Jesus took on himself, his incarnation. And, well, we were talking about the red heifer even a little bit, but a lot of these sacrifices are burned outside the camp. And I have recently been introduced to the possibility that Jesus' physical body was consumed as he ascended from the Mount of Olives outside the camp of Jerusalem to be the perfect fulfillment of all of those Old Testament sacrifices where the remains of the innocent animal were burned up and consumed outside the camp. This concept also contradicts the dispensational view. They somehow think Jesus is in his physical body in heaven at the right hand of God and will return to earth soon, always soon, in his physical body, but I do not believe that at all anymore. And the fact that our writer is quoting from this 40th Psalm that's talking about the physical incarnation of Christ and how that this is a better offering might point us that direction if we're open-minded at all. This is all at the time at his coming into the world. And this causes a lot of people distress, but throughout the Old Testament, we see the prophets making no distinction at all between the incarnation or first coming of Christ and the parousia or second coming of Christ. They're totally intertwined in the prophecies. So you read Isaiah, you read Hosea, you read Malachi, you read Joel, and you'll have a paragraph about complete and utter doom coming on Israel, and then you'll have a paragraph about the complete, utter rebirth of Israel, in which all the nations of the world will be regathered into Israel in her last days. And and they just jump abruptly from doom and destruction to rebirth or recreation all through the prophets. And this uh, 40th Psalm is no different, where it's talking about Perhaps his body being a good sacrifice at his coming into the world and some acts of judgment and so on may be mixed in here as well. Jesus, uh, in Mark 14:49, he was led off to trial and death with the words on his lips, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And again, this refutes <laughs> the whole concept of dispensationalism that says that Jesus 
rejection and execution was unforeseen by God and represented a complete failure of God's plan to set up a physical earthly kingdom in physical Palestine in the first century. Jesus doesn't seem disturbed at all. He's going off to be unlawfully convicted and executed, and he's claiming that's a fulfillment of the scriptures rather than a rejection or a failure of the promises that God had been making to Israel for 1,200 years. I'd like to jump Jesus. in on that one, Mark. I'm looking at the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where it says, none of the rulers of this age understood this, uh, talking about the hidden, the hidden and secret wisdom of God. And he said, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And I'm not a, a supersessionist or replacement theologian. I do believe that God's plan is the same from Genesis to Revelation, that as Abraham said, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. It's the, the faith and trust in God and in, in, in his redeeming, redemptive work that does it. It's not the bulls and goats. It's not, not those sacrifices. A book that I, I just ordered from Amazon is The Christus Victor by Gustav Alon. The, the whole model, Jesus' atonement, because that's what we're talking about here in Hebrews 10, the nature, nature of the atonement, what was accomplished, what was Jesus doing there? Why did he go like a lamb to the slaughter and, and not, not fight when he could have called 10,000 angels and so forth? And the Christus Victor model, from my understanding, is the, the model of the atonement up through about 1,000 A.D. Then when, uh, what's his name? Uh, I can't, can't, can't think of the theologian that came up with this, the penal substitution model. And that's what we're, we, we're running up against, especially in the Christian Zionist movement. We've got this idea of a vindictive God who wants to strike out and kill somebody. And Jesus puts up his hand and he says, I think his phone died. Somehow he got cut off. Okay. Well, the, yeah, I will maybe end this in case he doesn't get back. But we've talked about this a little bit before. There is a movement to the older, what we call the Eastern view of salvation versus the Western, which is the penal view of salvation that was discussed. There's a good YouTube video called The Gospel in Chairs, which demonstrates the difference in those two approaches. And there's a lot of people who do not like, <laughs> do not like this being pointed out. It is uh, very controversial. But again, replacement theology, supersessionism is technically not correct, as was just pointed out. What we're looking at is fulfillment theology, not replacement theology. Israel is not utterly destroyed and replaced by some new entity, the church. The church is a human creation. I mean, it's, it's not a proper noun in the Bible. It's just the word for synagogue or ecclesia assembly, synagogue, ecclesia. Israel is the word, but we see Israel in accord with all of the promises made to the prophets, being reborn into a spiritual nation of all those who have faith like Abraham. So I, I think we're saying exactly the same thing. These are really good topics for further study, and they all chop at the roots of the dispensational heresy that has gripped evangelicals in our country, sadly. Mark, I'd like to add a line. This is Chuck. In my experience, 
I've heard the term replacement theology thrown at us many, many times, and invariably it comes from somebody that is promoting the Christian Zionist point of view. And essentially, they package together anything or anybody who said that Christ is the fulfillment and he is what we follow and nothing else. If you contend that, if you say that, you will then be accused of practicing replacement theology. It's a club that's basically used by Christian Zionists against anyone who does not acknowledge that the state of Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy and still is part of the Godhead today. Yeah, I I mean... That's that's the context I've heard it. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's used as a convenient synonym for anti-Semitic. And remember, Dr. Strugnell, the chief editor of the Dead Sea Scrolls, by admitting in an interview that he believed in replacement theology, he lost his job within a week. His whole life's work was taken away from him just because he mentioned that term in a positive light. So it's a trigger word for them, and it's used as a club to smear everyone as anti-Semitic, as Strugnell was. He was said, oh, well, he, he admitted he's an anti-Semite. He can't have anything to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you read that whole interview, he says his dearest friends and associates are Jews, but he says their religion is just a wretched, miserable, empty religion. <laughs> but he loves them as people. How do you spell his name? How do you spell his name, Mark? S T R U G N E L L. His first name escapes me at the moment. Okay, thank you. All right. So, again, the point is that Jesus laid down his physical body as the perfect sacrifice, the only thing that could truly restore Israel to what God wanted it to be. It was not an accident. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a failure of God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross. It was God's intention from before the creation of the universe. So again, we're seeing perfect fulfillment. We're seeing perfect harmony from Genesis all the way to Revelation. At the end of Revelation, he says, Behold, I make all things new. To me, that could be the subtitle for the whole letter to the Hebrews. Behold, I make all things new. And this is what our writer is trying to stress. Why would you want to go back to the old when the new is so much better? And we can still ask that right tomorrow to our dispensational friends, but they won't be able to listen in most cases. Mark, when you talk about fulfillment, verse 8 really strikes me here. It says, first he said, sacrifices and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. You know, God created them in the first place in in Leviticus. He created the sacrifices, but he wasn't pleased with them. And I I kind of brought up the, you know, Mark chapter 1 and Matthew 3, where God introduces Jesus. First, he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And I, and I don't know, he's just kind of introducing his fulfillment. It just kind of struck me there. Oh, yeah. Was, Matthew, I think. What, uh, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Well, we have gotten down to a paragraph break, and we've had a lot of good discussion tonight. 
and I appreciate everyone participating. We will try to pick up uh, next time in verse 11 here where we're going to go back to the concept of the old high priest and the new high priest. Well, great. Thanks, Mark, and everybody else for your comments and questions. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.